Welcome to Liberating Race, a podcast from the Shift Network about race in the past, present, and transformational future. I'm Joy Donnell, and with the help of my co-host, Reverend Dr. Aaliyah Mahone and Nick Matos, in this episode, we will explore the narratives around the American idea of Thanksgiving and the current reality as well as the past traumas of the indigenous peoples who have always been on this land. Act One, Gratitude Out of Grief. Historians disagree on the precise origins of the American holiday, Thanksgiving. The celebration is often attributed to the folklore around an indigenous man named Tisquantum. By the winter of 1620, when the Puritans, known as separatists, arrived in their new world, two-thirds of the native peoples on the land currently mapped as Massachusetts had been killed by new diseases brought by European explorers or sold into slavery back in Europe. The Puritans we now call pilgrims were losing a battle for survival on this land foreign to them when they were rescued by the Wampanoag tribe, made possible by a man named Tisquantum from the Patoxa tribe who spoke English fluently. And through the generosity of Tisquantum and the miracle of his ability to speak to them in their native tongue, the starving and dying pilgrims were taught to fish and harvest the land they occupied without consent. And this culminated in a shared harvest feast we now call Thanksgiving, and a brief moment of harmony between two worlds before capitalist interest and zealous puritanical beliefs would make way for a genocide in the years to follow. Tisquantum actually spent his childhood as a kidnapped slave sold in Europe where he learned English. He returned to his homeland as an adult to find his tribe wiped out by disease. The first Thanksgiving actually took place on his people's land, that of the Patuxet. America's origin story is a complex one of land expansion at the expense of the peoples who were here on the land in the first place. And as we acknowledge an attempt to reconcile the complex history that is rooted in genocide, we also step into a current phenomenon of land acknowledgements in relation to email signatures and public events that are presencing the original inhabitants of the land. But what is actually at the heart of these acknowledgements? Do they get to the root of what we really need to actually heal together? Many events these days begin with land acknowledgements, earnest statements acknowledging that activities are taking place or institutions, businesses, and even homes are built on land previously owned by indigenous peoples. Quote, Land acknowledgements have been used to start conversations regarding how non-Indigenous people can support Indigenous sovereignty and advocate for land repatriation. No data exists to demonstrate that land acknowledgements lead to measurable, concrete change. Instead, they often serve as little more than feel-good public gestures signaling ideological conformity to what historians Amna Khalid and Jeffrey Aaron Snyder have called, quote, a naive, left-wing, paint-by-numbers approach, end quote, to social justice. Take, for instance, the evocation in many acknowledgments of a time when Indigenous peoples acted as, quote, stewards or, quote, custodians of the land now occupied. This and related references, for example, to, quote, ancestral homelands, relegate Indigenous peoples to a mythic past and fails to acknowledge that they owned the land. 
Even if unintentionally, such assertions tactily affirm the putative right of non-Indigenous people to now claim title. This is also implied in what goes unsaid. After acknowledging that an institution sits on another's land, there is no follow-up. Plans are almost never articulated to give the land back. The implication is, what was once yours is now ours. If an acknowledgement is discomforting and triggers uncomfortable conversations versus self-congratulation, it is likely on the right track. End quote. Anthropologist Elisa Sobo, Michael C. Lambert, and Valerie Lambert in their article, Land Acknowledgements Meant to Honor the Indigenous People, Too Often Do the Opposite. We love the story of Thanksgiving because it's about alliance, abundance, and envisioning a future where Native American and colonial Americans can come together and celebrate. But part of the reason they were so grateful was that they had been in such misery that they had lost so many people on both sides. In some way, that day of Thanksgiving is also coming out of mourning, grief, and this abundance that is a relief from that loss. But we don't think about the loss, we think about the abundance. Literary critic Kathleen Donegan. Act Two, The Power of Ritual. Well, I want to welcome you to Liberating Race and the Brave Race Space. You know, I've celebrated Thanksgiving for my entire life. And until today, I had never heard the real story behind what happened for the original Thanksgiving. The thing that stood out for me most was that even under the circumstances of losing people, of all of the disease and the death, actually, that happened, that having food and having brotherhood and community was still a healing balm. So liberating race is about us coming together to figure out how to do that well, how to do that like we've never done it before, in spite of the injustices, in spite of the barriers, in spite of the loss, in spite of all the things that we know that were not righteous, can we find the goodness within ourselves? And that's a question that I'm asking. That's a question that I ask myself all the time. That's the question that this podcast is asking you, the listeners. Can you find the goodness in yourself so that we can do this healing together. And this is a special night because I'm going to introduce to you my new co-host, Nick Matos. Nick, I am so delighted that you're here with me. Hello, Leah. It's so good to be here, here in the Brave Race space, as well as on the Liberating Race podcast. It's really an honor. Nick is a fireball, just an amazing man with so much intellect and so much energy. Oh my gosh. Uh, thank you so much. And you've actually heard Nick's voice before because he's done a lot of our narration. <laughs> yes. But I'm so glad that Nick is here. I'm, it's an honor to be here. Thank you. You know, first off, I want to acknowledge that I am coming to this conversation on occupied, unceded Ohlone land here in the East Bay of Northern California. And 
One of the practices that have has been really powerful and transformative for me since I moved here is that each year on Thanksgiving, I pay what's called a Shumi land tax, a voluntary payment to an organization here called the Sogoreate Land Trust. And this Shumi land tax is considered to be part of the effort towards rematriating this land that was unseated and stolen from the indigenous communities that come here. I highly recommend for everyone who's interested in taking land acknowledgement from the sort of performative space into an active space to consider as a first step making concerted voluntary uh, taxes. I, I mean, I wouldn't even use the term gift. It's really more about giving do what is due to these other, these groups um, each year. And Thanksgiving's a fabulous time for it. One of the things that was really striking as I was doing research towards this episode was thinking about who it was that was actually producing the food that we connect with Thanksgiving, the people who are actually killing the turkeys, getting them ready for us to eat. It is overwhelmingly an activity of Mexican people. So when we think about American modern Thanksgiving, we're thinking about largely and predominantly Mexican people facilitating the iconic thing that we connect with it, which is turkey. Even further than that, as we think about what we do for entertainment in American Thanksgiving, we're talking about football. Over 58.9% of professional football players are African American. A study that came out in 2017 notes that 110 out of 111 deceased NFL players had chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE, which is a degenerative brain disorder associated with repetitive head trauma. Going even further with the football example, as per studies that were conducted in 2017 and 2020, the football stadiums have an extremely deleterious effect upon the communities that are displaced in order to build them. Some examples of this came most recently in Chavez Ravine and Inglewood in Los Angeles, as well as in a number of other communities that largely displace communities of color, black and indigenous communities, in order to build those stadiums. We're looking at an ongoing experience in which the actual people who are the iconic figures of an American Thanksgiving are both one, people of color, and two, people who are disproportionately damaged by that experience. I'm not bringing this up in order to be a downer, first off. Just to be totally clear, what I'm bringing this up to be is just speaking clarity. These are the bare facts of the situation. And it may sound a little weird for a gay alien witch from hell like myself to, to be referencing this, but a lot of my thinking for this comes from a particular book by a man named Mike Wilkerson called Redemption, Freed by Jesus from the Idols We Worship and the Wounds We Carry. And in that particular book, he talks a lot about what a functional savior or a functional idol is. A functional savior or idol is this thing that we sort of elevate to the level of spiritual salvation, the sort of things that are ensconced as the iconography of our own specific personal religion. As we look at the way that in our modern context that we think about and engage with Thanksgiving, we have to be straightforward about what our functional saviors and our functional civic religion of Americanness is and how it is that that plays out in the specific quote-unquote secular holiday of Thanksgiving. Again, this is not to be a downer. What I'm offering you is an opportunity. The opportunity to really have an engagement with what your religion, quote-unquote, both as an individual as well as a collective society, holds as the icons that you want. 
that holds up as the things that are the desired states. And if that's capitalism, if that's the oppression of black and indigenous people, it's better to know that than not to know that. And as we look at Thanksgiving, as you look at your Thanksgiving, you're given the opportunity to make a different choice. Some ways that you can make different choices include things like, as I mentioned, paying a land tax as one example. Another one is to look at the ways that you source the food that you serve and how it is that you can bring that closer to your community and keep that money in your local community in support of the various different farms and agricultural endeavors that are available around you. And finally, to choose how you want to be entertained and how you want to entertain on Thanksgiving, whether or not you want to support systems that disproportionately impact Black Americans in a negative way, or whether you might want to make a different choice, a more loving choice. It's a beautiful question, ultimately. It's a little painful and a little uncomfortable, but that's why we're in the brave race space. We're here to be a little uncomfortable. And Nick... So you know that the first question that we asked all of our guests, and including you, because this is your first time on the show, here's the question. It used to be, where do you see your skin color in nature? We're going to change that because of your suggestion, actually. So Nick, where do you see your appearance in nature? Where do you see yourself reflected? What a fabulous question. And to answer this properly, I need to give a little context about me. Like most people of Mexican descent, I am mestizo. I am mixed indigenous and Iberian bloodlines. And like many people of Mexican descent, I have dark brown hair. And every day, my beard and my hair are getting lighter and lighter because I get more and more gray. And I grew up in the unceded ancestral homeland of the Pomo people, what is now known as Sonoma County, California. And Sonoma County, every year now, sees worse and worse wildfires that are coming through. And whether these wildfires are caused by somewhat natural causes, like the lightning that caused the LNU complex fires, or whether they're straightforwardly man-made causes, like the Kincaid fire that was caused by Pacific Gas and Electric, we see them each year. And it's important to understand that fire, and especially as far as indigenous land management goes, was always something that had to be invited into Sonoma County. The Pomo people even named the time period that we know as the month of October as the, the month of setting brush on fire, because it was that important to, to the ongoing land management. We, for the most part, don't really engage with that as a part of our land management, and so instead we're finding out the hard way the fire cycle of the suburbs. So during the Kincaid fire, when I was living in Sonoma County, I was quite struck that getting up one day and seeing that the sky was dark, dark brown with gray, that it was the smoke and the soot that was so fully suffusing the environment that even the sky was that color. And that was the color of my hair and my beard. And I, like the smoke and the soot that was filling the sky, am integrated with this place. Sonoma County, the ancestral homeland of the Pomo people, is part of me. That my bloodlines, the Iberian, Portuguese, and Spanish side, and the indigenous side are part of me. That I am not separate from the stories of these places. And similarly, that I am not separate from the story of oppression 
in the United States, that I am complicit in it to the degree that everyone else is, and also that I'm complicit in the transformation of it, the liberation of the people that are oppressed by it. And I make mistakes, of course. I have to continuously learn, of course, all people do. And simultaneously with that, I'm really excited to be here. Our guest today in the Brave Race space is Dr. Jolie Proudfit. She is a descendant of the Pechanga Band of Luiseno Mission Indians. She holds an MA and PhD in political science with emphasis in public policy and American Indian studies from Northern Arizona University, and a BA in political science with emphasis in public law from California State University, Long Beach. She is the director of the California Indian Culture and Sovereignty Center and department chair of American Indian Studies at CSU San Marcos. She serves as the first special advisor to the Honorable Cruz M. Bustamante, Lieutenant Governor of California, and was appointed by President Barack Obama to the 2016 National Advisory Council on Indian Education. In partnership, she recently formed the Native Networkers, an alliance to promote American Indian representation throughout the film industry. Dr. Proudfit, it is an absolute honor to have you here with us today. Thank you so much. Welcome. I am so glad that you're here, Jolie. And um, I just wanted to say that this is really special for us to have you a guest in the Brave Race space. And I also like to always pay attention to those words, brave, race, space, especially emphasizing the word brave. And I know that oftentimes I have to show up courageously to have these conversations. And so what I'd like to ask you as the first thing that I offer in our exchange is when you think about having to show up courageously or with bravery, where does that bravery come from? in regards to your life and background and who you are in the world? Well, at first I would like to introduce myself in, in my way, in my language. So, Mio Young, Natong Dr. Jolie Proudfit. Good afternoon, I'm Jolie Proudfit, and I am speaking to you from my home in Carlsbad, California, which is the traditional homelands of the Payunkawicham Luceno people. I have the privilege of living, working, playing, learning, teaching on my traditional Aboriginal homelands here in San Diego County. And so many Indigenous people do not have that privilege anymore. And I am Payankawicham, which in our language means people of the West. Traditionally, Indigenous people did not name themselves. And we refer to ourselves by place name so that we live in harmony with our relations, which includes the environment, the ecology. And when I address myself and define myself, I also recognize that I am Luceno because Luceno is the colonial name that was placed upon us, impressed upon us by the Franciscan missions who were one of the set of colonizers to colonize the California lands and landscape. And so when my people were taken to the mission or incarcerated, enslaved to build what is now the San Luis Rey Mission in Oceanside, California, we were then named after the mission place 
and the Franciscan priests, Father San Luis Rey, hence the name Luceno. And so I hope that one day that term is phased out and we use our traditional language to refer to ourselves, which is Payanguisham, and that language is starting to find more and more stability in places and spaces. And so when you ask what brings me to the sense of bravery to have these conversations, I have to say our ancestors, especially when I consider what our ancestors have gone through for me to be here present talking with you. And my ancestors have gone through 500 years of onslaught genocide from various forms of colonial governments. Unfortunately, we had the experience of having various forms of colonial government. So the fact that California Indians still exist, the fact that I'm here speaking to you is nothing short of a miracle. And so my bravery comes from a very deep ancestral rooted place, my blood memory of honoring my ancestors and using my voice to make sure that our people continue and that our humanity continues. And so I take these opportunities when I can to share our story and to bring us from the marginalization of of erasure and exclusion to having these conversations with folks so that we can really end this kind of colonial erasure of Indigenous peoples. Dr. Proudfit, where do you see your skin color reflected in nature? I see my skin color as the color of the land, as the color of the earth. I know a lot of people want my skin color because they go out and they try to tan themselves, but I do believe that I was intended to be here for a purpose, and I think my skin color is purposeful, and I, I don't like to refer to people by color just because there's so many different shades of color, but I am a form of color that is very much found in nature, and we are the people of the, the earth, and, and I'm Payankawicham, I am the people of the West. Your identity is so intrinsically connected to the land. How does it make you feel to have your skin color ref- reflected there? I have to say I have the good fortune to have some color to my skin, but being Native and being Indigenous is not based on your skin color. It's based on your relationship to your relatives and the sense of belonging to your family and your people and to the land. I often meet people who tell me that they are Native American. And when I ask them what tribe, they either say they don't know or they base it on some phenotype or high cheekbones or they tan well in the summer. And so for American Indians, it's beyond skin tone. It's about relations and relationship in the sense of belonging and community. And it's not a DNA test. It's not a genetic disposition. I think there's been a lot of conversation about DNA, especially when you look at these kind of predatory companies like 23andMe, when people are looking for a sense of belonging and they think that they can find it with a genetic test. And there's no genetic test that can tell you what tribe you belong to. There's no genetic test. It's about family and kin and relations and relations to one another and a sense of belonging. So for me, it's about family, the land, a sense of belonging to a community. And so while my skin color is brown, my identity is very much tied.
tied to my ancestors and my people and my teachings and the wisdom and the cultural knowledge and sharing that I have the privilege of learning and and listening to. And you bring up an interesting thing when you mention about the colonial project and the ending of it, because it seems that in the popular consciousness that colonialism is a one-time event that happened in the far distant past. But in many senses, it's an ongoing project. It's an ongoing dynamic force that's enacted. Uh, How are you seeing that colonial project currently being enacted so that we can start to dismantle it? Settler colonialism and this idea of settler privilege is, is something that this country has yet to have a reckoning with. We are finally starting to talk about race and racism and white supremacy and all that does. But we really can't talk about white supremacy without talking about colonial forces and colonialism, because that is at the root of all the isms. I think about the HBO series, Exterminate All the Brutes. And Raoul Peck does a magnificent and real difficult task in really describing colonialism and the impact it has had on the globe and on indigenous peoples on Black people, on Jewish people, and how that problem remains. And look at the issues of what's happening with pipelines and natural resources. I have friends and colleagues that are standing right now against line three and fighting against colonialism. Look at what is happening in Haiti and the impact of colonialism on Haitian people and For us as a country to look away when we have a direct line as to why things are happening over there. And so it's colonialism is a global disease. And I I would love to see us have the conversation about these kind of twin sources of oppression, which is racism and slavery and these colonial forces, so that we can be done with it. And so having folks start to use the language and to be experienced with what it means and what colonialism is and settler colonialism and settler fragility. These are new concepts for many Americans, especially, and very hard concepts because that means we have to deal with things like land theft. And we have to have real conversations about whose land are we on? And, you know, this real popularity with land acknowledgements has really become a form of optical allyship where people say these really nice things and they say whose land they're on, yet we're not present in buildings, in the naming of highways, in statues, in curriculum, in visible. And so there's ways in which to include Indigenous voice on our very lands. There's a land back movement. And some people are so afraid of having that conversation about land back because they think, oh, what does that mean? They're going to take my land and send me back to Europe. American Indians marry outside of our community, our race, more so than any other population. We come from such small populations. You know, my high school was bigger than my tribe. So if you just do the numbers the odds are very small that you can even marry someone within your own tribal community. So we understand this notion of diversity. And so these ideas that are, we're going to like throw people out and send them packing are not ideas that come from us. When we talk about land back, we talk about sharing the land and 
having us have some control and the stewardship and the nurturing and decision-making of the land. And how can we do that collectively? But that means we have to address colonialism and folks still are very hesitant. One, either they don't understand it or two, they're very resistant because they are benefiting from colonialism and they have a part to play in it and they have some responsibility in addressing it. Dr. Cho Lee, what you're saying now about words and about the terms that we use to describe things, there's a word that I didn't hear you say yet unless I missed it, and that word is genocide. And I feel comfortable using the word genocide because I feel that if we understood that the United States of America were actually built around the extermination of original peoples that were here before, that actually killing and sending away to other places and reducing the size of populations and some other atrocities that I won't list because we don't want to scare our listeners off. One of the things that I learned, for example, is I saw a map uh, once, actually I've seen it many times, that said that the United States of America, the landmass that we call the United States, consisted of so many nations of original peoples that there were 900 languages and 1,500 dialects in 1565. So what I want to say is, as we're looking at healing, because that is what we're looking at in this particular podcast called Liberating Race, we want to tell the truth and we want to actually understand how to reconcile make amends, heal, reverse, build a future that's different, whatever it is that we can do about this. But we also want to establish what existed before. Yeah, you're right. Genocide is a big word that we've had to fight to use to apply, and I'll be specific, to California. California Indians face the genocide of Uh, European colonizers from the Catholic mission system to the Mexican government to the gold rush period to government sanctioned militias. And the roots of racism are found again in colonization. So colonizers justified land theft and genocide by asserting that they were religiously and culturally and scientifically superior as a class of human beings to indigenous peoples when they encountered us. And colonization by white Europeans introduced strict Christianity-backed patriarchal created roles, and they justified the use of violence and endangered servitude and slavery with the missions system and the gold rush period, including sexual violence towards California Indians. And so this notion of genocide is something that's really front and center for me as a California Indian, for me as a mother. I will say two years ago, Gavin Newsom, our governor, was the first governor to apologize publicly for the genocide of California Indians. And I couldn't believe the words were coming out of his mouth. And so I'm forever grateful that that acknowledgement, because we have to acknowledge, we have to recognize that that happened, but so much more needs to happen. I often say that 
historical trauma has really done a number on Indigenous people because of all of the traumas and genocidal acts that have been perpetrated on us. And there's so many genocidal acts, and I'll talk about a couple of them. But historical trauma is anything that happened five minutes ago, 10 minutes ago. And two months ago, when my daughter was exiting the fourth grade, and the fourth grade in California is the cringe grade for California Indian parents, because that is the grade in which they talk about the gold rush and they talk about the missions. And in California, many classrooms and many teachers and many parents still celebrate the mission system as though they were somehow a positive event. And they also very much celebrate the gold rush as a very positive event. And we see this in our state in things that are named the 49ers. We see that in naming of buildings and places like after some of the early gold rush colonizers. And we see it when our children are forced to do things like dress up like gold rush miners, pan for gold as though it's some kind of fun activity. And in my family, that is a celebration of genocide. And so my daughter has had the good fortune of having a mom and relatives that are activists and that talk to the schools and work with the teachers and provide them opportunities for learning so that it doesn't end up in a conflict. And we were able to remove the mission project. And we even hired, I personally hired a curriculum specialist in the Encinitas School District to write some gold rush curriculum that would be appropriate because I do think we need to learn from history, but we need to be honest. And if we want to put things in the fourth grade, then maybe we need to reevaluate what grade we talk about certain subjects. But we need to talk about these things in a very honest way and the brutality against Native women and the murder of Native people and the government-sanctioned militias for the scalps and genitalia of Native women and children is a very real reality. We have government documents to that effect. Many folks have written books um, and published articles onto this. And so I don't know what happened, but there was a celebration three days before she exited the fourth grade. And I do think that given our pandemic COVID environment, there were some miscues and what have you, but I, I saw an email from a parent saying, it's our annual gold rush celebration days. These are traditions for many Californians. All we could do is keep her back from school. So we almost made it out the fourth grade, but for these last three days where some of these folks hold on to these traditions. And two months before that, her relatives were in a video that addressed the whitewashing of the gold rush. And I sent that video to the school principal and my student's teacher. The 10-minute video was like the perfect summation of all of this. And I understand teachers are overwhelmed in this environment. And this process slipped through the crack, but that is the real effect of colonization and genocide. My child in the fourth grade, I held her back. She stayed home that day 
And she's like, oh, they're going to make fun of me for not coming. What do I say for not coming? Because usually when we say, ouch, that hurts, that's a racist moniker. Please don't say that word. Please don't wear that. Please don't celebrate that. People say, you know, you're being a little too sensitive. We've heard this for years with the R team. We've heard this for years with the naming of certain holidays. And she has to then, as a nine-year-old, go and address this and deal with this. So these issues of colonization and racism and genocide are very much at the forefront of us as a family. We are always dealing with it in the language of curriculum, how we talk to one another. And the fact that she is literally the only Native American in her entire school on her traditional Aboriginal homelands where they're still celebrating the genocide of her people. I just want to pause for a second and allow myself and the listeners to take in that story about your daughter in the fourth grade and everything that you just said. Dr. Pradfit, I understand that you were just recently appointed by uh, Governor Newsom to the Commission on the Status of Women and Girls. And you had mentioned when you were placed on that commission how Indigenous women and girls really face a disproportionately high rate of murder, domestic violence, sexual assault, and disappearance as part of that. So it seems that there is really numerous levels of violence that are occurring against Indigenous women, from the sort of violence that your daughter is facing there to the larger and more systemic violence. How does that violence play itself out as part of the colonial project, specifically against women? Uh, This country was founded on the violence against Native peoples, and in particular, Native women. We know that some of the words that colonizers use for Native women that are now part of the American vernacular are taken from the genitalia of Native women. That's how much they thought of us or how little they thought of us. And the rape and murder of Native women has been documented and ongoing in the diaries of Christopher Columbus, in the diaries of the missions and the missionaries. And so it's well-documented, this type of violence. And so when we look at issues like missing and murdered Indigenous women and the politics around that and the fact that we have to fight to have the United States government document our numbers and who's missing and who's being murdered and where are they so that we can do something about that problem, we've had to fight Congress to enact particular laws and policies so that we can have jurisdiction over perpetrators on tribal lands. American Indians, when it comes to criminal justice, jurisdictional issues of tribal sovereignty are a really big issue. So folks who want to commit violence against Native peoples, women, lands, they can use those loopholes and come onto Indian reservations where there's limited law enforcement or jurisdiction over them. That violence against Native women has a tendency to persist And so when we fight hard against things like racial stereotypes or Halloween costumes like Pocahontas or this narrative of Pocahontas as a sexual creature being, these are real manifestations of the violence and sexualization of Native girls and women that we have seen from the very beginning. Pocahontas is a very good example of that. She was a child. One could argue she was the first 
high profile victim of this sexual violence. So to take that narrative and shift it into a cartoon figure and somehow turn this into a princess story is hurtful at best, but it continues to contribute to the violence against women. And so it's it's really important for me to make sure that we center Native women and girls' voices. I had no idea that I was the first Indigenous woman appointed to that commission. I will be forever grateful to hold that seat and do what I can to bring attention and to bring data. I'm a big proponent of good data and making sure that tribes in particular have access to that data so they can be empowered to use that to solve some of these issues and to address some of these issues. But when you're out of sight, you're out of mind. And that's why it's so important to make sure that when you're at the table and we're talking about issues of diversity and equity, that someone look around and say, do we have our Native brothers and sisters here? Because when we're seen as people of the past, then people don't address our real issues, needs, concerns, and also elevate the beauty and the contributions that we make past, present, and definitely future. This world is on fire, literally and figuratively. Climate change is real. Mother Earth is a relation, not a resource. And we need to treat her as such. And I think going back to Indigenous ways of knowing and listening to Indigenous people and truly listening to tribal, traditional, ecological knowledge so that we can have a spiritual awakening with our relationship to land and to water and to all of the resources that give us life, I think would be a very positive first step in our healing. When we talk about the United States in particular, we are the first peoples of this land. And so consider it this way, that we're at a dinner party and the dinner party is hosted in the home of a Native and Indigenous person. So before we discuss what we're going to eat, what we're going to order, what games we're going to play, where we're going to sit, we're going to ask the person who owns the house. And so if we want to talk about being in good relations, let's always consider whose house we're in and make sure that we are doing our due diligence to be good allies and to be in good relations. Pick up a book by an Indigenous person, watch Indigenous art forms, purchase Indigenous art, ask the teachers how Native voice is being included. There's just so many little things in which we can do that. And especially like in physical presence, like I'm involved in a lot of takedowns, taking down of murals, statues, racist names for buildings, I want to be in charge of putting things up. I want to be in charge of, let's put a mural celebrating Native peoples. Let's commission statues by Indigenous artists. Let's mark the landscape in a positive way and ask the Indigenous people how they would like to mark that. Even like naming of natural resources. That's a very unindigenous concept to name a river after some person. I don't care if the person was good, bad, or whatever. The river deserves to have its own place, but we don't get to even have those discussions. And that would take all of us being in good relationship with one another and with the land. 
And so I encourage tribes and tribal peoples to sign up to participate in city council meetings, local governance. And when there's the opportunity to name a new school, a new library, a new trail, a new park, raise your hand and say, did we ask the indigenous peoples of this land what they would like to name it? That's the least we can do since we're in their house. To learn more about Dr. Jolie Proudfit and her work, please visit her website at jolieproudfitphd.com. This is just a portion of the rich conversation that we have with Dr. Jolie Proudfit. To hear the entire conversation, please download the Shift app, which you can find in Google Play or the Apple App Store. Act three, allyship from humility. You probably already know, but in the United States, November is seen as Indigenous Heritage Month. And November 26th, the day after Thanksgiving, is Indigenous Heritage Day. Hi, everyone. It's Nick again. You know, as I was thinking about this, it raised some interesting questions for me about the entire enterprise. Congress passed a resolution that designated November 1990 as National American Indian Heritage Month. And then in 1991, Congress passed another resolution indicating that every November would be proclaimed as American Indian Heritage Month. And since then, every sitting president has signed a proclamation declaring the same thing. It's worth noting that of that group in 1990 and 1991, zero of those electeds were indigenous people. Zero of the presidents who have signed that since then are indigenous people. This is largely not a decision that was made by indigenous communities. And while there are certainly indigenous people who have came out in support of this, who have continued to work with the month of November as being a central date for advocating for the rights and the expression and the representation of indigenous people, this was not something that originated from indigenous communities. And that's an important thing to know, that this was something that was at just as colonization was imposed from outside, the month that we acknowledge indigenous people was also imposed. So I guess the question that's my follow-up here is, why November? And I, the thing I keep coming back to is Thanksgiving. This episode of Liberating Race has been very different than the others because we've been diving into something that has rarely gotten a lot of oxygen in the cultural zeitgeist. And that is the reverberating trauma of what indigenous peoples have gone through in the United States, what is now the Americas. One thing that is clear is that it's complex and very layered. And we're probably not sure exactly how to go about healing this, which is why it's so important to think about it, be aware, meditate on it, speak with others, and together start to bring to light what has gone unspoken for entirely too long. As you sit with what you have listened to and these different vantage points around history, trauma, and healing, Ask yourself, what would you like to bring into your life in relation to indigenous culture, wisdom, present, and future? What would you like to acknowledge around 
all of these different aspects of rich people who have given us so much collectively. How would you like to contribute to all of us healing? Liberating Race was produced by The Shift Network and was created by Joy Donnell and Reverend Dr. Aliyah Mahone. Story producer A. Kirsten. Narrations provided by Janice Ontiveros, Cayeza Fern, and Amy Kirsten. Liberating Race was produced on Chumash land. Please see our show notes for links and references mentioned in today's podcast to continue education and advocacy. Shift.